First Peter chapter number four. And I'd like to begin reading at verse number one. We'll read down to verse number eleven. Word of God says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister... Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us come into this place. And Lord, my heart's already been encouraged just by being here and being around your people and singing songs about you and hearing praises and prayer requests. Lord, both have, have encouraged and challenged my heart already. Lord, I do pray for these requests that you would answer them according to thy will. Give us patience, Lord. We don't have to always know the answer, but help us know that you're always the answer, to trust in you, to have patience, and to lean upon you in these matters, and help us to let patience have her perfect work in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us tonight as we gather around your word. May we rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, may we walk away not just knowing more, but knowing rightly what the word of God says, and may it be applied to our lives in such a way that wouldn't puff us up, but would make us more like Jesus Christ. And we'll be sure to thank you. Lord, we love you tonight. And we thank you for loving us. You're a precious God. Lord, I'm so I'm so pleased with you. I have no complaints with you. You've been so good to me in my life. You've been so good to my family. And you've been so good, Lord, to our church. And Lord, I'm just so thankful tonight. Words wouldn't say how thankful I am to you for all that you've done and will do. And Lord, above all, just for being who you are. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a wonderful God. Bless this time together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take particular notice of verse number seven tonight. Peter says this, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. I don't know about you, but that is a stark statement to me. The end of all things is at hand. When we read the word of God, it's important that we always understand not just the content, but the context of what is being written. If you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know the Bible at all. You have to understand who is pinning this down. We understand the Holy Ghost wrote it. But who is pinning it down, who he is, is writing it for, and, and, and what the content or intent of this passage is. We're told in the opening verses of First Peter that Peter is writing this to the twelve tribes of Israel which have been scattered. 
Now, it's apparent that he's not simply writing to those that are of the flesh, uh, Jews, because he's calling them brethren. And he's describing Jewish believers that have believed on Jesus Christ. And then, under the intense persecution that's described in Acts chapter number 8, have been scattered to the four winds of heaven and have been left completely uh, confused, disconcerted, disheartened, I mean, just utterly thunderbolt struck at their circumstances. And he writes these two general epistles that he might encourage them, that he might help set the frame of their perspective in a biblical fashion and help them to navigate and weather the trials and turmoil that they are experiencing. He talks in chapter number one about what the Lord has in mind for his believers about the inheritance, the incorruptible inheritance that God has appointed for us. He talks about our status as uh, priests unto God. I believe in the individual priesthood of the believer. Amen. I believe we need a human priest to stand betwixt us and God. But he talks about us being a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. He talks about the home and the responsibilities within it in chapter number three. And then in chapter number four, he begins to talk about the topic of suffering and how we are to suffer like Jesus Christ. And after dealing with that topic, he makes this statement almost as though to jar the readers into a right attitude about the place that they hold in God's plan for humanity and in human history. I think it's fair to ask a simple question before we get into the message tonight. What end is Peter talking about? When he pinned this down, and I'll help you with something as you study your Bible, particularly the New Testament and particularly the New Testament epistles. Everything that was written was written with the intent that the recipient might at least be able to understand the fundamental meaning of what was being written to him. You say, well, preacher, of course that's the way the Bible is written. Well, you read in the Old Testament prophetic portions of the Bible, and there's things that Israel couldn't have understood at that time. But God would in due course reveal those things unto them. But when we come to the New Testament, all things are brought into the light. And God is revealing his person and his personality, both in the person of Jesus Christ and in the revelation of the truth of the word of God. And so when Peter took pen in hand and wrote this down, there is at very minimum an application that he expected those that were reading this epistle to understand. In fact, let me say it this way. I think there's three applications we could make of this passage. What does he mean, the end of all things is at hand? Well, I'd say, number one tonight, there is obviously a historical application of this statement. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, there is a way that he intended for them to understand what was being written. And here's what I think, at minimum, that he had in mind. For them, their way of life had altogether ended. He's writing to a group of people that had been exiled and, and extracted and, and, and kicked out of, of their home, of their country, of their people. And there had been a way of life that they had known for thousands of years, but now that way of life had ended. They were all of the sudden exiled from the land of Israel and all of the sort of vestiges of, of what religion had been had been eternally altered by the cross of Calvary. And they're left thinking to themselves, where does that leave us? And what are our responsibilities to the Lord? They had been ostracized by their countrymen. They had been exiled by persecution. And in six short years, the temple that had to them their entire life been a visible symbol of the presence and worship of God would in six short years be destroyed. 
I think he's writing to them to help them understand exactly how they are to behave and exactly what that urgency should be that should be pressed upon their life. I think there's a historical application of this verse. And can I say this? Hey, we better recognize our way of life can change in a moment. We've learned that, haven't we, in our country? I mean, our way of life and things that we thought were were immutable, things that we thought were unchangeable, things that we thought were bedrocks and foundations of our civil society and our way of life have been fundamentally and, and forever changed in our country. Where does that leave you and I as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, I'll tell you this, it doesn't leave us without firm footing because our foundation is not resting upon the pillars of civil society but upon the bedrock of the inspired Word of God. I think there's a historical application. But then I would say this, I think there's a dispensational application. And I think that probably Peter had some awareness of this, but I think certainly the Holy Spirit understood. When you think about God's dealings with humanity, the church age, if we were to think of the world as a system, rests squarely almost at the very end of this world system. In other words, there will be, of course, the rapture. There will be Daniel's 70th week. And then the Lord will come in power and in glory. And this world system will crumble. There will be a new system instituted when Christ sits enthroned in Jerusalem. And he'll reign in righteousness with a rod of iron and in perfect judgment. And you say, well, preacher, glory to God. I'm looking forward to it and me too. But before we rejoice too much, what does that mean for you and I? Here's what it means. It means our time is short. It means our opportunities are limited. It means what we do could all be over in just a moment. Do you realize that today may have been the very last day that you ever got to serve Christ on this side of the kingdom of heaven? The time is short. The end is at hand. And I think probably Peter very much understood that we're nearing the end of this world system. And our opportunities to serve Christ within it. But then I would also say this. There is a practical application. And you say, preacher, what's that practical application? Well, it's very simply this. Uh, The end of everything, of all things, is at hand. But guess what? No matter when that occurs, your end might also be at hand. Because no man's promised tomorrow. This might have been the last day that you had. The last sunset you got could have been this morning. And this could have been the last day you had to do something for Jesus Christ. You know, one of the problems with prophecy preaching, and I believe in prophecy preaching. I believe we ought to preach prophecy. I think it's a large feature of biblical truth. If you take premillennialism away from your biblical worldview and perspective, you've got to excise about 30% of your Bible because it just doesn't make sense and it's not about anything anymore. And so I believe in preaching prophecy, but you know one of the dangers with prophecy preaching is it can sometimes cultivate a grotesque and carnal infatuation with futurism that doesn't produce a consecrated life within the person that's studying. Hey, even Hollywood makes movies about how the world's going to end. Lost people want to know how the world's going to end. But can I tell you this? The spirit of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Your prophecy preaching, my prophecy preaching, anyone's prophecy preaching is of no avail if it doesn't make us more like Jesus Christ. You know what I see as a common theme in New Testament prophetic notes and and sort of the tone and tenor of it? It is always followed up by a sober exhortation to respond to the reality of that 
with a obedience to Jesus Christ and an urgency in our spirit and our attitude. Anything less than that is a is is a is a sideshow. Anything less than that is knowledge that puffeth up, but doesn't edify. And so Peter says this, the end of all things is at hand. So what are you going to do with it? The end of all things is at hand. So how's that going to change you? The end of all things is at hand. What are you going to do in response to that? I want you to notice four things that he exhorts us to and four things that he says it ought to produce in our life when we understand where we sit in the timeline of God's dealings with humanity. Look with me at verse number seven again. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore. Now, the therefores are there for a reason. They're not just words that are meant to take up space on the page in your King James Bible. They are meaningful words. And Peter says, in light of this truth, predicated on this reality, built upon this foundation, Here's what it should do for us. Number one, he says this, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Let me say it this way tonight. Uh, the end of all things is at hand. So it's a time to be living with gravity. It's time. You all right tonight? Some of y'all don't know. We have church. We're at church. We have church. Hey, it's a time to get serious about living for the Lord. We don't have time to waste time. Jesus is coming soon. Your opportunities are limited. Your your potential is limited. Hey, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So it's a time to get serious about living for the Lord. It's a time to be living with, with gravity. Now, what does that mean? Well, notice the first thing he says. He says, be therefore sober. Now, what does he mean by being sober? Does he simply mean don't be drunk? Well, no, not simply, although I endorse that as well. And so does the Bible. Amen. But what he means by sober is your world view. Let's say it this way. It's a time to be living with gravity with a scriptural perspective. Uh, Y'all are probably more spiritual than I am, but I grew up watching Andy Griffith. Mayberry was a messed up place. I mean, you know, the old thing, I mean, that nobody was married. Everybody's like in their 30s and dating and nobody's married and... The only person in the whole town that's married is the fall down drunk, Otis. And uh, I, I, I remember watching Andy Griffith growing up and, and, you know, almost every episode you'd see Otis stumbling around staggering. And to me, at least growing up, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic's home. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, I didn't grow up around alcohol. So to me, the idea of a drunk was always associated with Otis and how he behaved. That's what a drunk looked like to me. And one of the things that marks a drunk is that they do not have a proper perspective of the world around them. They don't have a proper appreciation of the dimensions around them. They stagger about with no depth perception, with no foundation, with no stability. And they are merely bumbling their way through life, unaware of the dangers that surround. You know, there's a lot of Christians live that way, too. There's a lot of Christians, and they may never touch a drop of liquor. Praise the Lord for that. But there is no soberness to their life. Here's what God calls us to. He calls us to a scriptural, biblical perspective. We don't have time to traffic in opinions. We don't have time to traffic in preferences. The time is short. 
We better ground ourselves in the truth and the authority of the Word of God. We better raise our kids that way. We better influence our grandkids that way. Hey, we better serve the Lord that way. We better be a witness to the broken, lost world around us that way. There ain't time for anything else, and there ain't time for anything less. One of the things that I hope that the utter disillusion of any any facade of having a functioning political system in this country that has happened over the last few years, is I hope it has made believers realize. Now, let me say this. I'm a conservative. I'm more conservative than you are. You say, no, you're not, preacher. Bet you I am. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it was funny because when Donald Trump was running for president they 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 were scared to death and they'd say all these awful things you know like oh he he wants you know kick everybody out of the country he wants this and he wants that and he wants that and i think to myself no he doesn't kind of wish he did <laughs> but no he doesn't <laughs> the reality is hey i i'm not in any way saying we have to be politically disengaged but can i tell you this there's better things to talk about in politics Amen. Uh, there's better things to do than to than to pick out a team with an r or a d on it and sit and fight and fuss with all kinds of nonsense and silliness and that's not in any way suggesting that the devil does not pull political levers i, I just i'm not saying that that uh, the other side's good and your side's bad i'm saying they're all bad Amen. and if you knew the truth and the reality of it hey there there ain't god ain't within a million miles of any of them and you and I as Bible believers are called to a life that transcends above that and that is rooted and vested. Hey, go vote. Go vote. I don't care. Go vote. It doesn't bother me. Hey, don't vote harder. If they'll let you vote four or five times, go for it. Apparently they let people do that now. I don't care. But I am telling you that if we really believe Jesus is coming soon, we ought to have more to be focused on than whatever paid individual, whatever operative steps into the Oval Office next year. We ought to have a biblical perspective. That didn't make you mad. I got a few other things. We ought to be living with gravity with a scriptural perspective. But then notice the next phrase. He says this and watch unto prayer. Watch unto prayer. He doesn't say watch unto worry. He says watch unto prayer. Now believers are real good at watching unto worry. Ah, man, I tell you, worry is a hot commodity. Rage, anger is a hot commodity in the world we live in. There's people make a billion dollars a year off making other people angry. But as a Bible believer, you know what you and I ought to be? If we really believe things are in such a mess, why aren't we praying about it? Hey, if we're so worried about this next gender generation, all this, all this uh, transgender garbage, why aren't we praying for them? If we're really worried about the church in, in America and, and her decline and her apathy and her Laodicean attitude, why aren't we praying about it? If we're really worried about the devil getting our kids, why aren't we praying for them? Here's what it will provoke you to. It will provoke you to get serious with your prayer life. A right biblical perspective on prophecy, which is a large portion of biblical truth. If you have a right attitude about it, here's what it'll do. It'll make you get serious praying for people. You may not have time to witness to them in six months. You better be praying for them. You may not have another chance. You better be praying for them. I think it calls us to live with gravity. Then notice the second thing. Look at verse 8. He says this, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Charity. He doesn't merely mean giving. But he'll talk about giving here in a moment. But what he means is having Christian love towards other individuals. 
you look at the word charity and how it's used in your Bible, and it's always associated with the concept of Christians loving each other. I won't get in the weeds about phileo and agape and all that. It really, to be honest, anybody that thinks that it's all, if you really look, it's not consistently used. There's times that divine love is described as phileo and, and times that, that brotherly love is described with agape. And I don't have to learn Greek because I've got a Bible that I can read. You know, um, and so, you know, there, there's no need to do that. But just to understand that where it says charity, what it's talking about is Christian love. And here's what I would say tonight. It's a time to be living with gravity. Number two, it's a time to be loving with grace. Let me say, number one, it's no time for coldness. You know, one of the marks of the end times is that because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. Here's what Peter says, above all things, have fervent, fervent, warm, intense, urgent, fervent charity among yourselves. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, shouldn't we love the lost? Well, I believe we should. God loves lost people. I think we ought to. He loved the world. He loved you when you were lost. You love him because he first loved you. We ought to love lost people. But you know what I'm finding in the day that we're living in? That the closer we get to the coming of Christ, it's not growing intensely more difficult for Christians to love lost people, but it is growing intensely more difficult for Christians to love saved people. Why is that? I will tell you this, if we believe Christ is coming soon, if we believe the end of all things is at hand, and again, you say, well, preacher, he's talking about the end of the nation of Israel and the way that things had been done. I mean, the argument could easily be made that it wasn't at hand. It was past by that point. But even so, for these scattered believers, certainly their way of life had ended. And certainly, I think probably what Peter had in mind is where we sit in the spectrum and scope of God's dealings with humanity. But even setting all that aside, the fact that you and I know that we could die tonight, it's no time for coldness. We need each other. We need to love one another. If you don't think you need to, I promise you, devil beat on you and chew on you for a while, and you'll realize you need God's people. I, you know, I understand we have a country that has this, this romantic infatuation with rugged individualism. And I would say as a political ideal, I support that. I, I sort of, certainly, uh, am not in favor of smooth collectivism. <laughs> I'm more in favor of rugged individualism. But can I say this, that, that the principles and the founding of our country that had to function such to maintain a government do not necessarily provide a roadmap for the conduct and behavior of the people of God within the body of Christ. And can I tell you, I, I certainly am not advocating for collectivism, but I am advocating for the body of Christ. Amen. I'm saying you need people. Yeah. I need people. Amen. It ain't the time to go rogue. You need people. I need people in my life. I need God's people. I need encouragement. And it's no time to shut our hearts off to the people of God. We're living in intense times, and it's only going to grow more intense. I, listen, I, I don't, I don't know what things will look like when the Lord comes. I, I want to be very clear. I, I believe the Lord's coming before the tribulation. But that don't mean things are good leading up to the tribulation either. Uh, and I expect that things are not going to get better. If I read my Bible right, listen, we're not headed towards some amillennial utopia instituted by the UN. That's not where we're headed. We're headed for things to get worse and not better. And because of that, man, it ain't the time to push people out. It's the time for God's people to be loving one another. We ought to be loving. It's no time for coldness. But then notice what he says. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Boy, that's interesting language. 
I love the way it says it. Charity shall cover the multitude of sins. He doesn't say it will cover a multitude of sins. It will. But he says the multitude of sins. Almost like they're sins that have already happened. Almost like it's things that people have already done. And what he says is charity can cover those things. What does he mean by that? Does he mean if we love people, God will forgive them of their sins? No. No. What he means is this. It's no time for bitterness. It's no time for bitterness. Jesus is coming soon. It ain't time for grudges. Jesus is coming soon, man. You and I, we ain't got, we ain't got the liberty and we ain't got the time to walk around with, with, with bitterness in our heart. Is that how you want him to find you? It's not how I want him to find me. He said, but preacher, you don't know what they did to me. It's probably a multitude of sins. But charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Mm. It's a time to be living with gravity. It's time to be loving with grace. Look at verse 9. He says this, Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If we really believe the Lord's coming soon, if we really believe that we are positioned at the close of, of, of this world system and God's dealings with humanity within that construct, if we really believe that, then here's what it'll provoke us to. It'll provoke us to be liberal in our giving. That went about how I expected it to go. That went, that didn't surprise me. That went pretty much how I, I thought it would. Notice how he frames this. Now, the argument could certainly be made that we need to be liberal with our giving inside of the context of the body of Christ and and giving to the church. I'm for that. But the way he frames it is in our ministering towards one another. And he says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. I hope you realize Boy, I, I mean, it's, I know, everybody, everybody's spending all the time talking about how everything's fell apart. And I can't help but look around and think everything's falling into place. Everybody talks about how everything's just garbage and, and gone terrible and it's all awful, preacher. And I'm just wondering if some of these things God is not permitting in our country to get us back to a closer semblance of biblical Christianity. I hope one of the things that Bidenomics has taught you is that there's better places to invest your money than in the U.S. dollar. Now, I don't just mean the yen, although there's probably some wisdom there, too. And there's tons of people on the radio that are waiting to sell you silver and gold. But here's what I do mean by it. Why would we roost ourselves upon the resources God has given us instead of using those for the benefit of others and for the glory of God? Here's what he talks about. He talks about the resources God has given us. I like how he says this. He says use hospitality. He doesn't say show hospitality. He doesn't say have hospitality. He says you have a thing, now use that thing. You have resources that God has given you. Now use those resources so that you might be a blessing to others. He says to do it without grudging, with the right spirit. Well, listen, God is uninterested with how many che- how many zeros are on the check if it's given from a heart with a bad spirit. Yeah. Doesn't impress the Lord. It doesn't help the body of Christ. It doesn't edify believers. 
But if we will take what God has given and, and, and use it for the glory of God, hey, I think that's what I think. If we really believe our time's short, you, you listen, you, you, I promise you this, there ain't no U-Hauls going up in the rapture. Right. He ain't going to let you take a backpack with you, all right? And that, that all those things that we've laid up that the government has robbed 40% of the value of it from through inflation in the first place, and we're a heartbeat away from being like Cyprus and them just taking it out of our bank accounts in the first place. I mean, I understand why the world is is susceptible to that because they they don't see no value except material value but my soul you and i we ought to have a biblical perspective and understand there are safer places to put it and that's to put it towards the lord's work to use it for the glory of god he talks about the resources that god has given us number two he talks about the responsibility that god has given us he says as every man hath received the gift now, some people have real spiritual interpretation of that verse. So, what gift, preacher? Is that talking about the, the gifts of the Spirit? Is that talking about the fruit of the Spirit? Is that talking about, well, I'm gifted to this? Is that talking about I can sing good and I can do this and I can juggle and ride a unicycle? No, it's real simple. The gift he's talking about is the hospitality that he referenced in verse 9. He's saying that the material means that you and I have are a gift from the Lord. What does a man have that he hasn't received from the Lord? That's what Paul says. We've received everything from the Lord. So here's what he says, as every man hath received the gift, because at the end of the day, God has gifted you the things that you have in your life. I remember years ago, Barack Obama made the statement. He said, you know, you you have a business. You didn't build that is what he said. You remember that? You remember he said, he said you didn't build that business. And um, people that ain't never built a business. It doesn't matter. He said, you didn't build that business. He said, use government roads. You need this. You need that. You need that. And, and people took rightly took great offense at that because they thought, who are you? Right. To say that, you know, the problem and this was a trend in our government, it's still this way today is it's turned from government into God because here's what he was doing. He was speaking as God himself, because though Barack Obama nor Donald Trump nor any president could look at you and say you didn't build that. Guess who can God in heaven? Because he did give you the legs that carry you. And he did give you the breath that gives you wind. And he did give you the heart and the mind. And he did do all those things. And so everything that you and I have is a gift from the Lord. And the moment we quit seeing it that way is the moment that the devil has got our bank account and the devil has got our means and the devil has got our resources when we quit viewing it as the gift from God that it is. So if it is a gift from the Lord, here's what we do. He says, even so minister the same one to another. Here, here we go. Here's a good biblical word as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There's more than one type of, uh, ooh, how do I say this? I want to say it correctly. There's there. There are more, mm, I don't want to misspoke, I don't want to misspeak what I'm about to say. The grace of God is expressed in various means and ways. Yes, the grace of God was expressed when Christ died on the cross of Calvary for your sins and mine. You know, you know how God described the grace of, of God? You know how through the Apostle Paul, he said, he said, this is the grace of God, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty, you might be made rich. In other words, the grace of God as it is expressed in the lives of people, certainly first and foremost, primarily through the salvation that is purchased for us through the, the, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But you understand that grace gives you more than just forgiveness. Grace gives you more than just salvation. Everything that you have, you have by the grace of God. The house I have, I have by the grace of God. The vehicle I drive, I drive by the grace of God. The kids that I have, I have by the grace of God. The wife that I have, I have by the grace of God. And if that's God's grace, 
then I ought to be a manifold steward or a steward of that manifold grace of God. And that's how I ought to view myself. Man, it's, it's not mine, it's the Lord's. It's all His. And how can He use it for His glory? The end is at hand, friends, so it's a time to be living with gravity, with a scriptural perspective, and with a serious prayer life. It's a time to be loving with grace. It's no time for coldness. It's no time for bitterness. It's a time to be liberal in our giving with the resources that God has given us and with the responsibility God has given us. But finally, and I'm done tonight, I want you to look at verse 11. He says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's an interesting verse of Scripture. What does he mean when he says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God? Is he speaking as the Catholics do of us speaking ex-cathedra as the Pope allegedly does when he spouts his Marxist trash? Is that is that what he means by speaking as the oracles of God? Is he talking about the charismatics that get on TV and try to put words in God's mouth and proclaim themselves as being the oracles of God? It's not what he means. He doesn't say you are an oracle of God. He says when you talk, you ought to recognize that you are a representative of God and you ought to so carefully guard your words that you reckon and deem yourself as being viewed and interpreted by the world as being the very mouth of God. What does he mean when he says, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. He means this, if you're serving the Lord, you ought to do it as of the ability. And that, I think, means two things. One, do things God has equipped us for. Now, that doesn't mean do things that we are naturally equipped for. Because one of the, one of the expressions of God's grace is that he equips us to do things we are unnaturally equipped for. But it does mean the things he's equipped us for to do those things. But I think it also means that in as much as he's given us an ability, we ought to view that as a responsibility. Here's how I'd say it. Uh, the end is near. So it's a time to be laboring for his glory. And in the opening part of that verse, he describes how we should be laboring. The first, he says this, by not wasting our lips or the words of our mouth. He says this, when we speak, make it count. Make it count. You understand, you and I, as, as blood-washed, born-again believers, that we are the witnesses of God in this world. And when we speak, we, we ain't got time for nonsense. We ain't got time to get it wrong. We ought to view every day and every word we speak as an opportunity to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be a, a testimony for His glory. I think he means that we shouldn't be wasting our lips, but number two, by not wasting our lives. If any man minister... Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. In other words, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. If we're going to serve, let's serve with everything we got. And I think we ought to be serving him, don't you? I think we ought to be investing our life in the things of God, don't you? In other words, if we really believe that time is short, and I do, I certainly believe it's nearer than when I first believed. And if I believe the time is short and I believe the end is at hand, and, and if I can, if I can lay out all of those various eschatological positions and, and show you all of the prophetic, all of that is meaningless if it doesn't provoke me to Christ likeness. So what it should do is it should cause me to labor for the Lord. It should cause me to do something for God. Not waste what little precious time I've got in my life on frivolous matter. God don't begrudge you a hobby. 
God doesn't begrudge you having an interest. God doesn't, listen, I, God's not mad at you for having, you know, a family to raise and, and kids that you're spending time with and spending time on. And the, the, mm, the, the authority of God, the yoke that he puts upon us is not such that he might deprive us of enjoying life, but it is such that he might guard us from wasting our lives. Use your life for the glory of God because you're going to see him soon. That's what he tells us. It's why we should be laboring that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom we be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what we call a benediction. You know what he's basically saying? I'm going I'm to summarize it in hillbilly English because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. And he's worthy. And if we really believe that we have this narrow window of time to make our life count for his glory, then it's going to cause us to live in a way that pleases him. And that honors Jesus Christ. So that's my question for you tonight. What does your beliefs change about your behavior? What does prophecy provoke in you? I don't really doubt. There might be little things we would disagree on regarding things. But probably everybody in this room, we fundamentally know and understand and believe the Lord's coming soon. And we understand that we have a responsibility in light of that. And if that's so, how how am I letting that change my life? How are you letting it change your life? And how is that provoking us to a closer walk with Christ? I hope that it is. If it's not, man, tonight would be a good night to pile up on an altar and say, Now, Lord, help this, help this truth to live real in my heart and to change the way that I live day by day. Let's bow together. A musician's going to come play. Miss Connie's going to come play for us. And the altar's open. You don't have to wait for a note to be played if God spoke to your heart about some matter. Might have been something I preached on. Might not have been anything I talked about, but the Holy Ghost did just did a work in your heart about something. If there's something God's dealt with you about, why don't you meet him in this altar? Let him have his will and his way in your heart tonight. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.